I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddy Dobbs. It is a Monday afternoon or early evening here in Tenerife. Got blue skies. Yesterday I was out all day riding. This is the island that just keeps on giving for motorbikers. Right, today's episode is proudly sponsored by XL Moto, the one stop shop for all things motorcycling, whether it's clothing or upgraded parts for your motorbike, servicing parts and everything in between. There are a few things from XL Moto. Well, there's a lot of stuff at XL Moto I like, but I want to specifically mention one product from XL Moto because a company called Ride and Sons, which is I think under the XL Moto umbrella, Ride and Sons, they make an absolutely incredible waxed cotton 1960s style jacket. It's about 265 pounds. It's called the Ride and Sons Arrow Jacket. I showed it on a recent YouTube episode and it is honestly one of my absolute favorite jackets. Now I now wear it all the time and it is all day comfort. It's soft. It's soft wax cotton, not that really hard stuff that I sometimes experience, but it's really soft wax cotton. Feels extremely well made and it looks incredible. Got all of the the protection, the armor, the abrasion protection, although you do actually have to buy the back armor separately. But anyway, I recommend it hugely. That's xlmoto.com you can buy the jacket from. And it is, well, I absolutely love xlmoto and I love, I love, this jacket. So go and check them out, xlmoto.com. Right, let's get to it. I will start today with two bits of news. Let's start with the news. Okay, here we go. Just clicking on my phone to open this up. And this is from, I don't know, why does it, 
why is it always the Daily Express? Like, I don't know why I always start with stories on the Daily Express. It's not that I'm some avid Daily Express reader. It's just these stories, for some reason, always pop up on my phone. I have no idea why. And then every so often I click thinking that's interesting. And now all I see is Daily Express articles. Okay, this one from the Daily Express. And I'm quoting here. We begin. The new zero emission zone in the UK to charge all petrol and diesel cars from next month. So the first zero emission zone will be launched in the UK in February as local councils continue the government's push to ban petrol and diesel cars by 2030. It means anyone entering Oxford city centre that isn't driving an electric vehicle will now be charged for for doing so. The scheme will be launched in two stages from next month and begins with the unveiling of a red zone in the city which will see drivers of petrol and diesel cars hit with a charge. Welcome to the beginning of the end, everyone. This isn't just... The beginning of the end. It's not as simple as that. I really think this is now we're coming to potentially the beginning of the end of internal combustion vehicles being allowed to comfortably drive in larger cities. I think that's what this is. It's happening in London. I think I think it may be happening in Manchester as well. Oxford, of course. I mean, it's really only cyclists that can enjoy getting around Oxford because it's just set up more for cyclists. Uh, And then you've got in England, I'm sure it's the same in other countries, but in England, I don't think it's as much the same in Wales, Scotland and Ireland. But in England, you've got, especially for cities like Oxford, you basically drive up and you park in a big car park. And then I think it may even be a free bus service. No, you've got to pay. I'm sure you pay. Then you jump in a bus and the bus takes you into the city. They call it park and ride. So I think that could be the future. Ah. Uh, maybe it's no bad thing. I don't know. I mean, as long as you can bike in there, it's fine. Maybe it's not a bad thing. I mean, driving in cities in England, specifically England, I'm sure Wales and Scotland are better, but driving in England into the cities is pretty hellish anyway. So, so there we go. Diesel and petrol cars in Oxford. I think this is regardless of how eco-friendly they are. You're going to start getting charged as of now, I think. Right, next article I wanted to hit you with. This is, oh, there you go. There's a bit of diversity. The Guardian. Car makers report booming UK sales of electric vehicles. In fact, I think it was my dad that sent me this over. This is really interesting. In... Okay, let me read it to you. Booming electric car sales were a bright spot in a tough car market last year amid disruption to global supply chains hitting manufacturers, according to Fresh Data. In its annual sales snapshot from 2021, the Society of Motor Motor Manufacturers and Traders said car makers sold 190,000 battery electric cars across the country last year, accounting for 11.6% of total sales. 11.6% of total sales in the UK were electric vehicles. That is absolutely huge. And in fact, I may even be able to go one further because I think my brother-in-law sent something over saying it was a colossal in December specifically. Yeah, here we go. In December in the UK, I think this is from the FT. More electric cars were registered in 2021 than the entire preceding five years, according to the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders. 
While one in four new cars sold in the UK in December were battery vehicles, 25% of all vehicles sold in the UK were battery vehicles. I don't know if it means pure electric or hybrid, but anyway, that's a huge percentage. That really is probably probably the first time now uh, I've seen a really chunky percentage come along in the UK. I mean, usually you get, you know, five, uh, less than 5% even, you know, the, the numbers are minimal. Now, these are big numbers. Two things I think with this. One, this is brilliant. Great, we're moving towards a greener future. Secondly, I think we are one million miles away in the UK as it stands with our electrification. One million miles away. Now the fact that we're finally buying electric vehicles in big numbers, well, I hope the government is actually going to do something about getting these electric chargers out in some kind of substantial manner and not just, oh, there you go, there's a, there's a broken charger outside Budgeons, that should be enough for the, the town of 220,000 people. And, oh, there you go, we've just fitted two outside Tesco. One of them already works and apparently that's going to be enough for South East London. I hope they actually do something proper about it because now the government have to step up because people are now properly buying electric vehicles. So now the government have to step up. It's always that chicken and egg situation. What, what comes first in the electrification of, uh, in my example, the UK? What happens first? Do you make all of the charging network at gigantic cost to the government and hope that they come, the electric drivers, car and motorcycle owners come? Or do you, what I honestly think is happening here, do you wait for everyone to buy electric vehicles and then you start properly building electric network? I really do think that the government here is basically just waiting for a gigantic amount of people to buy electric vehicles before they actually start the catch-up process because I think they're already going to be in the catch-up process with the amount of new vehicles. If 190,000 battery vehicles were sold in the UK last year, oh, it's going to be very, very soon before this is completely unsustainable, the, the way that our network is. And we're probably okay in the UK, but I would class our, our electric network, considering the claims that the government's making, as completely substandard and in, I borderline say it's a disgrace actually after having the Harley live wire for a few days, a complete disgrace. So let's see what actually happens with that. Rant over. Motor Goodsy. So I know rant not over actually. Motor Goodsy. I have never ever had, never had so much negative feedback towards one motorcycle brand. When I posted the Motor Goodsy V7 video and I said, why aren't they more popular? I was blown away by how many people have have something to say about Moto Guzzi. Even the Italians, actually. I had one Italian contact me and say, Freddie, you're, you're absolutely right. I went into Moto Guzzi in Italy and I asked if I could test out. I asked if I could test out a Moto Guzzi. Moto Guzzi's reply was, yes, but you can only have it for five minutes. I don't, it's just amazing. It's amazing. I, it is almost universally atrocious, atrocious feedback for Motor Goodsies, aftercare, after sales, customer service, absolutely atrocious. The worst I have ever, ever heard about. In fact, funnily enough, 
When I do the surveys of what motorcycle brands are good and I ask bikers, by far the lowest that I've done so far is Ducati. And I'm going to do a Moto Guzzi one very soon and I think Moto Guzzi will be much worse than Ducati. What is it about Italian motorcycles? Why don't they understand that you need some level of customer service or some level of reliability? Because Ducati scored extremely badly when I did the survey of owners, what they thought of the bike. Do the, basically, the questions are, would you class your bike as reliable? Would you buy another one? Ducati's done atrociously, and there were over 500 responses. I haven't done Moto Goods yet. I think it's going to be way worse than Ducati. There's something going on. In Italy, they need to up their game with after-sales and reliability. I really do believe it. I like Italian bikes, but it, these, it's, it can't be a coincidence that the two Italian brands get such bad feedback. And then you get the Germans, the Japanese, all get relatively, relatively speaking, maybe not all, but so much better feedback. So, so much better feedback for reliability, for after-sales. Um, the US, it looks like it's completely over for Motor Goodsy the way it is now. They are absolutely furious in North America, I should say, because the Canadians are the same. In North America, they have nothing good to say about Motor Goodsies apart from the bikes themselves. People actually like the bikes themselves and they say they're actually, the new ones at least, they're fairly reliable, but they say the, the after sales teams, the servicing teams, getting parts in, it's all a complete disgrace and it's enough to make you have a nervous breakdown. Okay, rant over. Right, I can move on to something now. Let's get on some positive stuff. Someone mentioned this, actually. Um, he said, Freddie, if you're, uh, you know, if you like the Moto Guzzi, and obviously I like the, the Royal Enfield, he said, this rider said this to me. Really, he said, you, you need to try a sports to it. You need to try a sports to Freddie. He said, they're, they're reasonably priced, or at least... They're reasonably priced when you consider that they're going to hold their value so well they probably won't lose a penny. Unlimited parts availability, including tires. It's an old company and retro styling. I've owned three Sportsters and they are bulletproof. The sound is amazing. I love the Moto Guzzi to be clear, but the Harley Davidson 48 is a pretty damn badass bike. If you were ever, if you were closer, Wisconsin, USA, I'd lend you the bike for a month. If you ever want to visit uh, the office still stands, um, there we go, etc., etc., etc. Basically, really, if I like the Moto Guzzi V7, which I did like a lot, I really do need to try the Harley Davidson Sportsters. And it's a bike I've said so many times on this podcast. It's a bike I genuinely would love to own. Owners of Sportsters, they really, really like them. They're not fast, but I'm not looking for a fast bike. I know exactly what it's going to be like. I know it's going to be a fairly sluggish bike, and I know the handling won't be dynamic, and that's not what I'm looking for in a bike. I think sometimes the sports that is the bike that I've always been looking for, and there was one variant I just wanted to share with you. Okay, if I go into Auto Trader, one variant of the sports, because I know I always talk about sports, so I won't go there in this episode, but there is one variant I want to say, and that is the Harley Davidson Sportster. I know, I know, but the Harley Davidson Sportster XR. Now, this is 
what would you class it as? Like the, the, a flat tracker version of the Sports, the 1200 engine. They didn't make this for long at all. I think maybe just two or three years. It was never popular sales wise, but it holds its value extremely well. So Harley Davidson Sportster XR, and you'll know it because, it, well, it looks, it is like a, a flat tracker. I wouldn't class it as beautiful, but you know prices are for the cheapest one 2010 model in the uk you're looking at eight thousand pounds 7995 so eight thousand pounds is a minimum for a 2010 model you know and there are 2008 models you know they're going for 10k the 2008 models uh oh here we go i found one for seven and a half k seven and a half k for the cheapest seven and a half eight and a half yeah seven and a half to ten k they're not pretty but they've got a certain amount of character to them these let's have a look i don't know why i always do this to myself i always look at the cheapest cheapest one i found seven and a half k 2009 harley davidson sportster xr 1200 comes with 12 months mot it's in black it's got that classic harley v twin uh, 1200 engine it's jacked up with the suspension it's i i actually like these it's it's muscular, it's minimal, it's stripped back. I've heard that the plastic quality is poor from owners, so don't expect the absolute last word in refinement, but I think these have some character, and I think this is a real modern classic, actually, this. So if you're in the market, or just open-minded to a slightly different bike that you're almost never going to see, you really aren't, you, you very, very rarely see these around. Have a look at that because you're not going to lose a penny on these. I actually think they're going to start going up in value within the next maybe maybe five years or so, but hold on to it. You're onto a good investment there. Harley-Davidson Sportster XR. Right. Oh, this. I get asked this question. It's funny, actually. I get asked this question more than any other question and it's such a specific question freddie i'm looking to take my motorcycle test should i go out do my c do my cbt which is basically just a, a day's training where at the end of the day basically it's almost impossible to fail and you can then ride any 125cc bike that you want it lasts for two years and it means that you have to keep your learner plates on you can't have a pillion but it means that just within one day you can then go out and you've got the freedom of 125cc motorcycle ownership so the question should i go out buy a 125cc bike effectively train myself up make sure i'm confident competent on the road and i understand gear changes everything like that and within you know after buying that let's say 125cc mutt for example if i buy that i can train myself up for two years and then within those two years or so i can then look at doing my motorcycle my proper motorcycle test in my own time uh, while always training myself up on my own personal motorbike and it means that I can ride my motorbike immediately I don't need to worry about waiting for a test and then failing and having to rebook etc etc so here's the trade-off do you go out and buy a 125cc motorbike immediately that you can ride around 
until your heart's content. And in that time, you're not under a huge amount of time, stress and pressure thinking, my God, I've got to pass my big test and I've got to book it. And if I fail, I'm bankrupt because I have to rebook a test, you know, or do you take your time with it like this? And I've been almost completely 50-50 with this because if you go out and buy a 125cc scooter, let's say if, if you go out and buy a 125cc not scooter but motorbike like Amata held there are loads of cool brands now that do very good looking Bonneville-esque 125cc bikes so you can now genuinely have a really cool looking 125 bike so you go out you buy it let's say you spend three and a half let's say 3k on a cool looking 125 3,000 pounds you get it with a warranty and everything like that if you buy it new so no issues there you then learn in your own time to pass your test. And if you have to take your test, direct access with all the lessons, in the UK, you're looking at about 750 pounds. But if you fail your test, in reality, you're probably looking at about 150, 180 pounds to rent out the bike for the day, get the instructor to take you to the test and book the test itself. So you're going to be looking at a lot, a lot of money if you fail your test. I failed my test actually first time. And that does put a lot of pressure and stress on it. I remember I was very stressed out because I failed first time and I thought, right, I've got one more chance to pass my test. And if I fail my test again, I honestly don't have another penny left. So it is a stressful thing. So buying the 125cc, it, it does take away some of that because you're still on two wheels. You know, you can still, for example, commute to work or wherever you're going on your own bike. And if you fail, it's still a pain. But you know, it doesn't mean you're, you're not on two wheels, you know, you've still got your two wheels there and you can still go out and practice and make sure you're sharp. Uh, and it does take time, it takes time to get used to gear changing or option two, do you, having never ridden before, just book your direct access, which is where you go from never having ridden a bike before to passing your test within one week, which is what I did. I did the direct access. So I went within one week, never having ridden a bike with gears before to, well, I failed first time, but uh, passing my test. I had to take my test, I think, two weeks later when the, the next spot was. So I effectively went within a week from never having ridden to passing my test. But because of COVID and everything, I've heard that there's some fairly long lead times to actually book your test now. I've heard some people saying three months because there's such a backlog of all this COVID stuff. That's a long time to wait. That's a bit of a game changer. If you've got to wait three months, I would say, I, I would say you've got to go out and get a 125cc. I would say that's the best option if it's three month lead time to actually get your test. And if you fail, well, you have to wait another two, three months, you know, to rebook your test. That's a huge amount of time. The way motorcycle residuals are now, if you can buy a 125cc bike, you're probably not going to lose too much money on it. And importantly, you won't need the £750 direct access course. You can get away with just having the one day effectively renting out the, the motorbike and getting the examiner to take you there for the day. So you're probably going to save maybe even 600 pounds or so for the full week's training. So that is a big cost. And I don't think you're gonna lose 600 pounds in depreciation from your 125cc bike. It will probably actually hold its value a bit better than that. So it's very nearly 50-50. So if someone asks me, Freddie, what should I do? Go out and buy a, you know, a Mata Herald, a cool looking 125cc custom bike, or 
do I take the risk, go and try and pass my direct access and just get straight on to a Royal Enfield classic, you know, a Royal Enfield meteor, something like that, something a bit meteor with, uh, with regards to performance and horsepower. And after saying all this stuff, honestly, I'm still 50-50. I really am. If you want to get on your bike and you need a bike to start commuting on immediately, I'd say probably go for the 125cc. If you can wait a bit longer and you're comfortable on the road, maybe because you've, you know, you've had your, your car license for a few years, I'd say probably just go with the direct access. But there's no right and wrong. They're both brilliant ideas. And that's why Mutt, Herald, all of these other brands that make these cool looking 125 and 250cc bikes, they should be applauded because I've ridden them. They are incredible fun and they're game changing. It means you now can finally ride around on a cool 125cc bike and it's genuinely cool and fun and it's a game changer. So you can't go wrong either way. Right, I'm going to get on something completely different. For the final bit of today's episode, I'm going to shock you and I'm going to talk about two bikes that they're not really anything like the bikes that I'm I'm interested in traditionally they're not but they're two bikes that are interesting because of what they represent both of them were were very much of their era when it was all about you know absolute horsepower you know beasts of bikes um, big engines just absolute Japanese quality refinement power continent crushes of bikes and it was all about these headline figures and you had a few of the big players in the game probably most notably the Hayabusa and then I think you've got then probably the Honda CBR 1100XX Super Blackbird and then you've got the Kawasaki ZZR 1100 these are all bikes around about around about the 90s a kind of even early mid going up to late 90s and you can get them at a good price now and the reason I wanted to talk about these because they are they all have Japanese build quality of course because they're Japanese they've all got huge engines absolute refinement and they're at an era they're in an era especially if you go for if you can get one around about the 2000 and onward mark you're probably going to get really really strong reliability as well you know even these Japanese bikes from the early 90s mid 90s even I've had them you know still not they they still don't feel absolutely reliable I had a I had a Suzuki Bandit 2002 model that was still carbs and that was really unreliable actually it was a tank it would always get me from A to B but I'd often have to take the tank off and kind of unpinch wires and get the carbs going by push starting it or some weird stuff that I didn't understand for me carb bikes carbs you know carburetors I don't know I, I never gel with them I will stay well away from carb bikes but but having said all that there are two bikes that interest me because they're about the 2k mark and I'm going to talk about two of them that is the Honda CBR 1100XX Super Blackbird I think my uncle actually had one of these the Honda Blackbird it came along in 1997 until 2005 MCN Motorcycle News rated it at 4 out of 5 and listen to this owner's ratings of the Honda Blackbird 4.8 out of 5 so what I'm doing here 
is I want to give all those people who maybe have their budget. In fact, it's still, you know, it's not cheap. I remember my budget until two years ago is 800 pounds for bikes. So it's still, you know, it's still expensive-ish. About 2,000, 2,500, two to two and a half K you can get these for. And I think they look like a good proposition at that price. So the Honda Blackbird, uh, MCNC, it's got Honda reliability. It was the world's fastest production bike when it was launched. It had, I cannot even believe this. It's the first time I've seen this actually. 164 horsepower. That's huge even today. And this bike came out 25 years ago and it had 164 horsepower. The owner's reliability rating of the Honda Blackbird, the owner's reliability rating, that's the one that I really care about, is 4.9 out of five. Let me just click on that. If you want reliability, there is only one option and that's Japanese. I don't care if you're a Harley guy or a Triumph guy, it doesn't matter. It's all about the Japanese if you want absolute reliability. And I'm just looking at the owner's reviews now. Someone said, Old Man's Express, five out of five. Honda Blackbird, still a star, five out of five. Smooth as, five out of five. Best ever bike built by Honda, five out of five. A truly balanced bike with power, comfort and design that would still be cutting edge with some updates. The best bike ever produced by Honda, that owner said. Right, what are we looking at? I'm actually a big fan of these. It may not be exactly my kind of bike styling wise, but I do appreciate it actually. I do for the the machine that it is. Prices come in. I'm not gonna look at a written off one. Mm, uh, no, I won't look at that one because someone's put aftermarket decals. I want a standard one. Okay, standard one from a dealer. £2,395 with just 26,000 miles on the clock. I think that's a really, really good price. 2.3K for a 1998 S-Reg, and it's only got 20, 26,000 miles on the clock, which for an 1100cc Honda is absolutely nothing. I'm looking at the front end. It does look very much of its era. Oh, it looks very 1990s, but I like that. I would actually, I would actually consider one of those. I really would. It's. I think that could also be a bit of a future classic. Classic bikes or cars, vehicles, they're classic because of what they represent. And these bikes, these sports tourers, almost, I guess you'd say, hyper tourers of their day, these sports tourers of their day, these, the big three, you know, the Hayabusa, the Blackbird, and the Kawasaki ZZR 1100, that, that was a really, that's a big fight between the three of them. You know, these are, what do you call them? Um, kind of the pinnacle of all of these different bike brands at the time. Uh, let me quickly tell you about the, the Kawasaki, see what we can get. Kawasaki ZZR 1100. They come in, oh, it's a 1990, even 1990 models actually for these. Two and a half K for one of these you need. That's 123 horsepower, 1100 CC bike. And that's the bike that the Blackbird knocked off its perch. But I could get actually a 1999 Kawasaki ZZR 1100. Okay, listen to this. This is really interesting. This will be my final point of the day, but let's see how residuals are. Right, okay. I'm looking at 
a, oh, I tell you what, if you go for a 1990 model, that's 3,000 pounds for a 1990 model, 55,000 miles on the clock. That looks so of its time. That looks so, so retro now. Go for a slightly more modern one with a 1999. You're looking at 27,000 miles. You're looking at 3,000 pounds. If I go to the modern equivalent, if I go for the Kawasaki ZZR 1400, the latest edition, you're looking at, so if we compare it to about 3,000 pounds, this is so, so interesting. Seriously, so interesting. Okay, it's actually eye-opening. This is eye-opening, right. You, you, the ones I was talking about, the ZZR 1100s, in the UK, they're about 3,000 pounds. This just shows how strong residuals for motorbikes are. You look, you know, the the ones there from 1995-ish, they're 3,000 pounds for 1995 Kawasaki ZZR 1100. You can get one with a 2,000, you can get a 2009 ZZR 1400, a 2009 ZZR 1400. So that is, that's a good 14 years newer or something. You can get a 14-year newer bike with, this is the 1400cc bike, 1400cc bike, 14 years newer than the ZZR 1100. It's going to be, it will be better in every way. It will be. Of course, it's not getting to the classic level, so you lose out on that classic element of it, but you're probably in reality getting a better bike, and you can get it for £3,500. So for just £500 more, you can get an admittedly high mileage, but what do I always say? I love high mileage vehicles, and this is my bike for the week, actually. Just stumbled across this. We know if I'm doing a bike for the week, I'm going to do an even better one. 2007 model. Kawasaki ZZR 1400, 3,200 pounds in silver. This bike is just 200 pounds more than the bikes that came out 20, 25 years previously. So you're only looking at a difference of about 200 pounds between the year of 1990 and 2007. Uh, sorry, 17 years difference, not 27. 17 years difference and you only need to pay an extra 200 pounds. So let's end it on this. Kawasaki ZZR 1400, 54,000 miles on the clock, which is nothing for a 1400. And you get this hyper tourer of a bike, 187 brake horsepower for 3,000 pounds. It's got 12 months MOT. That's the annual check that they do. It's just past the annual check. Nice conditional round, three keys, lots of paperwork receipts braided front brakes yada 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 this comes from a dealer it's got a yada yada tank protector don't care about that it's fine viewing highly recommended givey top box with rack you even get a top box it even comes with a top box three thousand two hundred pounds for a hyper tourer like that oh that's gotta be a good deal for someone now that looks like a modern bike in, from 2007 
that's a modern bike you're not going to have any of those funny reliability issues that you get from the 1990s bikes because 1990s bikes most of them are a bit unreliable actually in reality if they're carbs and etc etc i've spent my first five years biking with 1990s japanese bikes they're not reliable in my opinion that will be very very different right let's end it there thank you so much for listening to this week's episode have a brilliant week everyone and i'll speak to you in the next one Thank you.